everybody, it's Kai. Thanks for listening to the Corner Office Podcast. Today, David Malpass, president of the World Bank, and Janet Yellen, former chair of the Federal Reserve. We talked at an event hosted by the Bipartisan Policy Center about some of the big issues facing global economic growth right now. The U.S.-China trade war, the outbreak of the coronavirus, and the always important strength of the American consumer and consumers worldwide. So here it is, my conversation with David Malpass and Janet Yellen. We're expecting you. Won't you have a seat? Ready to go to work? Uh, so thank you all for coming this morning. We do appreciate it. Um, and I'm going to start with, a, with an admitted softball. Uh, and and uh, David, I'll start with you. Uh, describe for me this, this macroeconomic moment. Where are we? Uh, thanks. Softball, slow growth, but that uh, leads to all sorts of conversation. As far as growth, in, for developing countries, it's really problematic as global growth slows down. We recently did our global economic prospects report, mm-hmm. so the bank does twice a year a thick report on growth. And looking at 2020, only 2.5% real growth. And that's a compendium of some of the developing countries, especially China and a little bit India, running above that average. But then uh, the U.S. in our forecast was consensus at 1.8 percent for 2020. Some numbers show that maybe being higher. Uh, but Europe is down at 1 percent only and Japan at 0.7 percent. So they drag down the average. Mm-hmm. So that gives you a sense of what's going on in the world that uh, developed countries are not growing fast enough to provide the the engine. And the big countries matter in both the developed and developing world. You've got to get some of the big countries going in order to get people toward prosperity. Janet, let me ask you this question then. Where are the drivers of growth? I mean, if, as the World Bank says, the United States is going to grow 1.8% this year, are we helping? Um, so growth in the United States this year is likely to be slower than it was last year and the year before. But um, likely the U.S. economy is still going to grow at its potential or maybe even a little bit higher, which um, in a sense is all that can be expected, uh, especially given how tight the labor market is with the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years. So um, it shouldn't be surprising to see growth in the United States around 2%. We've had globally, weak global growth is a drag on the U.S., and the U.S. growing slower, of course, is a drag on the global economy. But the driver of growth for the U.S. and in many many, um, more developed countries, this is true, that the main driver is the consumer. Yeah. Consumers are in reasonably good shape in the United States. Um, we've had solid job gains and income growth that's driving consumer spending. The service sector is strong in spite of the fact that manufacturing's been going through a really weak stint, yeah. U.S. and globally. Trade has really been... Um, very depressed, especially since the tariff increases. But the U.S. consumer is strong enough to, I think, propel in the United States growth at a trend-like pace, which is not inappropriate given it means 
we'll continue to have a very tight labor market and maybe it'll even tighten further. But don't, sorry, wait, let me just follow up really quickly. Don't you worry about consumers getting tired? Because it's been years now that everybody from you on down has been saying, consumers, they're the thing. How much longer can that happen? Well, consumer spending is in line with income growth. Um, If you contrast the current situation with what we saw before the crisis, in the run-up to the crisis, Mm -hmm. consumer spending was also the driver, but it was debt-fueled. We had Mm -hmm. a lot of people using their homes like piggy banks, taking out home equity loans, and the saving rate had been declining to exceptionally low levels. Um, We've been through a very tough period in the United States uh, in which consumers have worked off debt. Interest rates, of course, are also low, so debt burdens are quite manageable for the household, not for every household, but for the U.S. household sector um, as a whole. And the labor market's been performing exceptionally well. We still have about 180,000 jobs a month. And wage gains are moderate, but have picked up some. And um, the saving rate is a lot higher than it used to be. And so I don't see the consumer spending that's carrying this economy as based on um, very weak foundations. It's it's based on solid growth of income. I see it as sustainable. David, I cut you off. I apologize. What were you going to say? That's fine. Just picking up on some of those uh, points. The misery index is yeah. is way down. And so that gives, uh, if, if you look at what drives people going forward in businesses to create a new business, it's as people have confidence in the economy. So remember the old misery index, the sum of the unemployment rate and the inflation rate. Yeah. And one implication from that then, as the as the unemployment rate has gone down, the participation rate yeah. has gone up. And economics isn't very good at putting a value on all those skills being created from the participation rate. You've got people of all parts of society, minorities, lower end income, getting maybe the first job or the second job and building skills that will last a lifetime. So that is the best investment. If we look in developing countries, the best thing that could happen is to have more people working because they learn how to run the equipment, mm-hmm. the, the, the transportation, the, all of the things that are needed within the economy. One other point uh, that follows is, uh, you know, real median income has been going up uh, sharply in the U.S., which helps then with the consumption or gives sustainability. That's the combination of the nominal wages going up at all levels and then the inflation rate being low. So one of the most important things I think we need to see a change in in the global environment is better structural reforms, and particularly Europe and Japan, which are growing at half the rate of the U.S. and still with the high unemployment rate. So that skills divide that's going on is very apparent with Europe of uh, the U.S. creating more and more people that know how to get a job and a system that does that. And that's just not there in Europe right now. So uh, I get all that and that's all Good, and, and I appreciate the, appreciate the indicators, but, but let me pick up on something you said, Janet, which was that the U.S. economy is growing about at it, its potential, 1.8, maybe 2%. Is it troubling to no one that the potential of the American economy is 2%? It is troubling that okay. it's 
to present. I, it's something that has been long anticipated, so it's not an enormous surprise. Part of it reflects a slowdown in um, labor force growth. We have an aging population, um, less immigration. The second piece of it is productivity growth, and it is depressing or of concern that not only in the United States, but in most developed countries, we're simply seeing slower productivity growth Mm. than has been the average least in the United States over the last 50 years, and way below um, what we've seen in some periods like the second half of the 90s or in the post-war period up to around 1973. Productivity growth averaged about 2.8%. Now, and projected going forward, we're looking at half that, Hmm. 1.4%. Partly, I think it reflects sluggish investment spending Mm -hmm. Um, ever since the financial crisis. And we continue to see we've had three quarters now of actual negative um, investment spending. Um, Part of it reflects a slowdown in the pace of um, educational attainment in the United States. The average level of education is going up but less quickly than um, in earlier years. But most important, just the pace of technological change seems like it's declined, and there really is no agreement on the reason. Um, Some people think uh, that the inventions that we've had just aren't as exciting in terms of their potential for productivity in a wide swath of the American economy. The American economy also seems less dynamic. We have a slower pace of startup of new businesses, less reallocation of people and capital from um, declining firms and industries into dynamic firms and industries. Why that is exactly is also uncertain. But, you know, the diagnosis of why slow productivity growth, no clear uh, diagnosis there. But, of course, it's of tremendous concern. I I say this mostly just to, I guess there's probably thought bubbles out there, but it's not at all encouraging when a former Fed chair says, I don't know. (laughs) You know? Anyway, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's the truth. (laughs) And we'll get back to that in a minute. Um, Globally, is the global economy at 2.5% or whatever? Is that growing at its potential? I mean, are we looking at we're doing about as good as we can do everywhere? Uh, No, certainly. And uh, I'm I'm not such a fan of potential growth as being a limiting factor. I think it depends on what structural reforms you you do. Mm -hmm. So could the U.S. have a sustained growth rate higher than that number? Absolutely. And it involves policies that that can be changed. Uh, So I want to come back to that. But looking at the global growth numbers, the 2.5% is a World Bank number. And so as an aside for the for the GDP nerds in the uh, in Raise the audience, uh, 
the uh, IMF puts out a higher number. Uh, th- theirs is running some 3.5% or 3.3%. Yeah. Uh, the way they do that is they overweight China and India and other emerging markets, which have, because they use a purchasing power parity model, which I don't think is the mm-hmm. best one to use for this purpose. And then they underweight the U.S. and other countries that are really producing a lot of GDP. So th- it literally puts a heavyweight on China, which is recording a you know six percent kind of real GDP growth. So uh, I think we should start from a two point five and just recognize that that's too slow to get yeah. other countries moving, and then focus in on what that is. And there's no one answer. With regard to productivity, I really think it's important that small businesses innovate. They're the ones that hire, that typically Mm -hmm. have hired workers that have been left out. You know, the first job that people have used to always be with a small business. And then if you did well, a big business would pick you up. In Europe, that's not happening. There's no engine. So we have this really important disconnect that the central banks say they're doing stimulus, but credit growth is not fast. And small business credit growth is, in many countries, zero. Whether in Europe or in Egypt, some of the developing countries, you just don't have the credit growth at the small business level that would allow the new skills to be picked up. That is productivity, if you think about it. Innovation and productivity from smaller companies, and we've kind of lost that model. Um, Very quick change of topic, since you both have brought it up, the recession and the response. Uh, The crisis next time, because of course there's another recession coming. Uh, This expansion is uh, long in the tooth, although it does not, uh, as we all know, die of of old age. Coronavirus, does that distress you at all in terms of, of a global economic shock? I mean, you were just in Hong Kong. You're, you're feeling fine, we should say. <laughs> but, so far. But, you know, so far, right. See, it's been three Great. weeks, so <laughs> all's good. All right, good. Um, are, are you worried about that? I mean, honestly. Well, of course. Yeah. It is a potential influence on the global economy. It seems certain to have uh, a significant effect you know, at least for a quarter or two on Chinese growth. And China is such a significant piece of the global economy that's bound to have spillovers. There remains an enormous amount of uncertainty about um, what will happen with the coronavirus, whether it will be contained. I'm obviously not an expert in this, but it's it clearly is a significant concern. I guess Um, Economists have looked at what's happened with past episodes like uh, the SARS virus or the MERS virus. And typically what's happened in the past is there may be a short-term impact um, of an epidemic or a pandemic, but longer term it seems to have relatively little influence. And I think many observers are hoping that will be true this time, but we don't know where this is going. And I mean, to my mind, it is um, clearly a source of uncertainty and risk to the global outlook. David, the World Bank's position? Yeah, the, so there'll be a lowering of uh, forecasts for mm-hmm. the, at least the first uh, part of 2020, in part due to China, but in part due to the, the supply chains. To give you an example, a lot of Chinese goods come out to the rest of the world in the 
belly of aircraft that are carrying passengers. So as you cut down on passenger flights, you need to adjust the supply chains in order to get the goods out to make the products that the whole world economy is operating on and vice versa. They go Mm -hmm. back in to China that same way. It's the world's biggest economy. Um, A positive side that I'd bring out is the different science that's available this time than the SARS. Uh, So SARS was 2002, 2003. China hadn't uh, hadn't released the virus to allow scientists to uh, look at it. Uh, This time they quickly released the virus so that uh, people can decode the genome of the virus and that allows them to then study. And technology has come a long way in uh, finding things that, uh, that can affect viruses. So we have some hope that uh, science response will sh- shorten the full life cycle of this uh, crisis. Also true, though, that China's more integrated now into the global economy, so that's, you know, the, the transmission vectors are completely different. Correct. Um, okay, change of gears, uh, but still generally China-related. Um, I want to talk about trade for a minute, uh, current state of play, and whether, David, you think uh, the, the period of trade unpleasantness, shall we say, the past 18 months, um, has been worth it. Well, there's, they've, they've reached a deal, and I gather are still working on it. I'm mm-hmm. not part of the administration, so I don't, uh, I'm not privy to that. I think there were, are clear objectives with China that, uh, that people are working on. One is the rules that involve intellectual property and so on. If progress can be made in that area, that's going to be good. And then also with China, Part of what's going on, I, with the World Bank, we can work with them on ways to have more transparency within their development assistance programs. So I, if I could, mm-hmm. I'll take a quick minute on that. Transparency is so important in both the way people invest and the debt that they use to invest in it. Economics shows us debt is basically good if it finances good investments. But to do that, you have to know what are the terms. So what interest rate are we talking about? How many years? What are the clauses? And so China was this new player in the international sphere. Their economy went from, you know, zero to 60 in terms Mm -hmm. of GDP growth and per capita income. And so as they did contracting in developing countries, they put in new terms into the contracts that don't work very well in the international system. And again, I I, uh, say China's working well with this, but it happened very quickly. uh, The amounts that they're investing in developing countries skyrocketed. To to be clear, you're not saying that China's a paragon of transparency here, right? They're not. And it would be good to have China join the world more in an international system that operates on, I don't want to say tight rules and regulations. I just want to say general standards of how these things operate. Mm -hmm. That's going to go a long way. Uh, Jen, to the question of of, um, the president's tariffs uh, and whether we are getting to where uh, the president and his advisors have said we want to be. As I'm sure you remember, you and I spoke on Marketplace a year ago. Uh, as the trade war was was really getting going. And I asked you at one point um, if you thought the president understands macroeconomic policy. Uh, and as I'm equally sure you remember, you said, no, I don't. Um, do, do you still feel that way? Well, um, with respect to tariffs, I think President Trump and some of his advisors 
are very focused about the magnitude of bilateral trade deficits and take that as um, a symptom of relationships being unfair and seek to really try to modify that. So I regarded that as not the proper focus. But let me be clear, I do think the United States has real issues in terms of its trade relations with China. I think it's healthy and a good thing for business confidence that there's been a truce in terms of um, escalation of tariffs between China and the United States. But still, lots of tariffs are in place, and importantly, they affect intermediate goods. Um, You know, when you look at businesses in the United States, if a um, motive for putting in place tariffs was to make U.S. manufacturers more competitive and to um, increase job prospects in manufacturing in the United States, I would say we haven't seen that. Um, On the one hand, the tariffs afford some protection for U.S. manufacturers, but on the other hand, they serve as tariffs on intermediate inputs that are important to these same businesses. And overall, it seems to me that it's been a wash from the perspective of U.S. jobs, especially in manufacturing. I bet that's the answer you wish you'd given last year, right? That's right. Yeah, there you go. Um, I guess I should have been prepared for that. (laughs) Um, When we started, you both talked about uh, the China slowdown and the European slowdown. David, who are you worried more about? Europe slowing down or China slowing down? Well, the coronavirus is a new factor for China, and we'll see how they're dealing with it. I've offered our World Bank's Mm -hmm. support in in various ways. Um, So I think Today, we have to say the China slowdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, if you'd asked me a month ago, I would have said the Europe, because <laughs> its economy is bigger than, in combination, the Eurozone countries are bigger than China, and their growth rate is simply not adding to the world. So let me mention a little bit the, the World Bank goals. Um, I'd like to see good outcomes for developing countries. Uh, That means poverty alleviation. That means higher median income because it's very tightly connected to poverty alleviation. So that leads you to how do we get more growth in developing countries? For many in Africa, the single most important one is Europe's growth rate because it's the market source for a lot of the trade going on. So uh, World Bank then works in specific areas in country in developing countries around the world to try to have better structural policies so that they can make more advances. That means the rule of law. Uh, that means transparency, which we talked about. Yeah. It's also electricity and water that can get to a bigger percentage. We have a lot of developing countries that still only have 30% of the people have electricity and even fewer have clean water, which leaves big problems for children's health, for, uh, for the way the society works. So getting all of these done, and I'll mention one more point, sure. which is uh, g- governments have uh, a, a little bit conflict of the incentives that they have. They, w- they want to get a, a solution within their term in off- office. So they want something that works in two years. And a problem is that some of the best changes operate in 10-year horizon. 
And so, and particularly now with the yield curve flat, there's a conflict between what they should be doing, which is investing for the long term, and what the either politician or even the autocrat they they need near term gratification. So I think the solution is very firm transparency of what they're buying, so that people of the investments that they're making and the debts that they're taking on, so that the public can better uh, evaluate what they're getting. Let me riff on that for a second. Do you think the American public understands the debt that we all owe? Jen, no, Jen, I'm going to give you that. Do you think the American public understands its debt? Um, I think the answer is no. I doubt that most people, for example, would know that the ratio of debt to GDP in the U.S. has um, doubled since the financial crisis. And I sometimes recommend to people um, who ask me about this topic, pick up the Congressional Budget Office's long-term budget projections and take a look. And um, the details change from year to year, but for more or less the last 20 years at least, what you see is the U.S. debt path is completely unsustainable um, under current tax and spending um, plans. And the exact way in which it takes off moves around from year to year depending on what happens. But that fundamental problem of the U.S. debt path is not sustainable, I think, is something that most people don't understand, and I see very little evidence of concern about it in recent years. All right, thanks for listening to that. The conversation I had the other day with David Malpass, the president of the World Bank, and Jenny Yellen, as you know, the former chair of the Federal Reserve. The Corner Office podcast is produced by Bridget Bonner with help this week from Bennett Purser. Marketplace is produced on the radio by Nancy Fargali. Satar Nieves is the executive director of On Demand. Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager. You can subscribe to the show on Apple iTunes or wherever you choose to get your podcasts. I'm Kai Rizdal. Another episode for you in a couple of weeks.